All right, well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, and uh, kids, I hope it wasn't something I said. <laughs> Always a fun time to see our children going out. Um, most of those kids will get returned to parents at the end of the service. Okay. Uh, you can pick them up on the, on the way out. Um, thank you for joining us for part four of a five-part series. I'm very excited about this morning's uh, uh, opportunity to, to talk with you uh, about the, the topic at hand. And we're in the series that we're calling Got the Nerve. And at the, at the heart of this for us is that the idea that, that faith or belief in anything, whatever it is, whether it's faith in something religious, spiritual, or faith in your favorite team, or faith in whatever it might be, that any kind of faith, it's possible to, to say that I believe something without actually doing anything about it, and actually live in a state of belief, but not in a state of action. And that belief requires action or follow-through in order for it actually to be authentic and real. And we kind of covered that. There's a difference between calling yourself a believer and actually then calling yourself a follower. That the, the two are not necessarily synonyms, although they might be, but the two are distinct. That following something requires putting one foot in front of the other or one hand on top of the other or putting something in to action. And so this series, we've been looking at the life of Peter, who was an early follower and believer of Jesus, who actually put his belief into action. And one of the unique things about Peter is that he was someone who always did two steps ahead, one step back, two ahead, one back. And he went through this rhythm of success, failure, success, success, failure, success. And what Peter had the nerve to do, and what I want to encourage us to have the nerve to do, is to step into our faith by following and doing something that may, we know, because we know ourselves, may mean that we may be unsure about how to accomplish it. We may actually fail in the process of executing our beliefs. But the question is, do we have the nerve to go anyway, even if we are going to fail, because Peter certainly did. So this morning, I want to tell one more story about the life of Peter, and and the story this morning is exciting to me because it is a story that, um, and I'm not prone to much exaggeration, I don't think. I'm going to let you determine that, but but this story is no less important, is, is like the greatest issue ever to face the church as we know it today. That issue today is the greatest thing that has ever shaped the church as you and I would understand it today. And so it's such a big issue, such a big important thing that happens. It's very exciting to read it, to see it, and to go into it again. And so this morning our story begins at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the port city of Caesarea. Not Caesarea Philippi, this is a different Caesarea. This is a Caesarea that used to be called Stratos Tower, a smaller Caesarea, but it was indeed a home to a Roman emperor at the time. And Caesarea was a primarily Gentile city, meaning they just simply weren't Jews who were there. They believed in all kinds of different things, but did not necessarily follow Judaism. And in this town, in this town called Caesarea, at three o'clock in the afternoon was a rather devout Gentile man who would pray. And even though he wasn't a Jew, he would pray three times a day because that's what the Jews did. And he was a good man who wanted to connect with this God, even the God of the Jews. And so at three o'clock in the afternoon, he finds himself praying. And this this man is a well-respected community leader. He actually oversees about a hundred soldiers in the Italian regiment of the army at the time. See, Rome was in control and he was a a leader in the Roman army, a centurion, they called him, overseeing a hundred soldiers well-respected man. Actually, he was the kind of man who gave to the needs in his community. 
he would, I believe, if he were here today with us, love what's happening in the community that we're a part of, the Together Initiative Network and the ways that we can connect and meet with all kinds of people with various needs and all that to, to make a better community because this is what he did. He gave to the needs of the poor and he was a man who was well-respected and trying to figure out what it is that he can do to connect with God. His name is Cornelius. So at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius is praying in Caesarea and he gets this vision from the angel uh, of, of God. And all of a sudden, for the first time, he has this really clear vision about what is happening and what Cornelius should do. And this is what the vision essentially says to him. This is what the angel says to him. He says, Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Interesting. Like, we've heard your prayers, Cornelius. And now what I want you to do is now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. This is all he says. Now, Cornelius is a man over other men, and he's a man in the army, and so command and authority is all commonplace to him, and so he gives instruction and takes instruction, so order is fine to him, and so he follows orders. And he gets two men, and he sends them to Joppa. Without really understanding why, he just sends them. And so meanwhile... As Luke is writing this story, by the way, Luke is writing this story in Acts chapter 10, and Luke writes the story and he tells us what happens next, because it's a two-day journey from Caesarea to Joppa, that the next day, around lunchtime, um, Peter is getting ready around the noon meal to get something to eat, and he's hungry. Now, I don't understand how he does this, but when he's hungry, he actually went up to the rooftop and went into a trance, almost kind of fell asleep kind of thing. Now, when I'm hungry, I tend not to fall asleep. Peter did. He went into a, a trance. And in this trance, a voice spoke to Peter. And this is really profound. So around noon, he's on the rooftop and a voice speaks to Peter because Peter's seeing something come down in his dream. And he sees this sheet dropped from heaven. And on this sheet are all kinds of animals that for Peter, as a Jew and a devout Jew, are terribly unclean. Meaning if he eats them, he's impure. In fact, Peter has never eaten these animals. He's always never ordered from that side of the menu when he goes out to eat. He's always avoided these things. And here's what shocks Peter, is the voice says to him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. To which Peter says, no, 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 no. I have never allowed any of these impure animals to touch my lips. Like, I'm a devout Jew, don't you understand? To which the voice says again, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. In which Peter reacts again, no, 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 I have never, never done this before. No, I cannot do this. To which the voice says for a third time, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Now this is a really profound moment in the life of Peter. In fact, if you're a devout Jew, you don't even want to tell someone you just had that dream. You don't even want to tell somebody that you've been thinking about eating something impure. I can imagine the anxiety inside of Peter. I can imagine that he's probably sweating from the anxiety of what this dream even means, that he's even thinking about the idea that he might cross a line that he has never crossed, and that it's a line, it's a rule that has been passed down for him to generation to generation to generation. You do not, we do not eat this kind of food ever. Your father never ate this kind of food. Your grandfather never ate this kind of food. Your great, 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 keep going all the way down. They never did this. This is who you are. And then a voice says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Three times Peter rejects. 
I don't know how to compare this to our world very easily, except to go here. And I wonder, you can be the judge of this, but I wonder if it would be similar to some of our most devout Amish friends. Imagine for a minute some of our most devout Amish friends in our community, whom we love, but some of the most devout who have been in the Amish world for generations. What if they received a vision? with a sheet coming down from heaven, and on that was a F-150 and a tractor with tires and a home with electricity wired into it. And they were told, get up, buy, drive, plow, and turn on. Can you imagine for a minute the gut reaction against that? No, 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 no. No. For generations, this has been handed down to me. We don't, we don't do that. I mean, I know people around do, and that's fine if they do, but we don't do that. In fact, this is what has kept me clean and pure. I don't cross that line. Because if I cross that line, it impacts not just me, but listen, if I cross that line, that impacts my family. If I cross that line, that impacts the friends that I have. If I cross that line, that impacts my working relationships. If I cross that line, everything about my life as I know it that's been handed down to me from generation to generation to generation is now at risk. Not only at risk, but is probably lost. And I dare not even tell anyone about this dream that I just had. See, the problem is not that there's the potential to break a rule. The problem is what this rule means. See, we're fine with breaking smaller rules. No one is ever going to be critical of one another because we break the speed limit here and there or there all the time. We're fine with that because it's just a, it's a rule and we understand that. But when a rule, like the rule that Peter is wrestling with, gets passed down from generation to generation to generation and it's a rule that is associated with how you connect to God, It takes on a life of its own. And it begins to sink deeper into your heart and soul. And it begins to be something that over time you begin to think, God made this rule. But in fact, what if he didn't? This is where Peter is at. And so Peter wakes up from this vision, this dream, this anxiety of this moment. And he is grateful to have a distraction. Because the door is knocked upon at Simon the Tanner's house. And these men from Caesarea are finally here. And they ask Simon the Tanner, is there someone named Peter here? He needs to come with us. Peter comes down and greets him. And I believe Peter is glad for the excuse to do something else than to explain to somebody why his face is probably flush and why he's probably anxious about what he is processing. And so Peter, in a smart move, he invites six of his friends with him to go to Caesarea. Peter is in a tough predicament because he doesn't know why he's being asked to go. The messengers cannot give him a reason other than our boss told us to come get you, so come. And Peter goes and he takes six people with him. And it takes two days, so the first day they travel, the second day they arrive in in Caesarea. And here's what they find. Peter comes with his group of six people, and then there's the Cornelius' servants. And Cornelius comes out to, to meet Peter outside the home. And Cornelius bows down to Peter. 
Peter says, get up. I'm a man just like you. Get, get, get up, get up, get up. And then Peter walks into the house with him. Now in the house, imagine this for a minute, in the house are actually all kinds of people. The house is full. What had happened while these men were off to Joppa to get Peter's that, that Cornelius told his friends and family, listen, come in two days, give me two days. Two days, come to my house. Peter's coming. Now, how would he know that? There was no one who texted him to say, yeah, Peter said yes, he's coming. There was just anticipation. There was build-up. There was belief. Cornelius simply believed, you show up to my house on Thursday, that's when Peter's coming. And it'll probably be around 3 in the afternoon or 5 in the evening, just come to my house. That's about the time it takes. He has no uh, uh, affirmation that's actually going to happen. But in the house, Peter finds all kinds of people. His family, his children, his dog, maybe his cat. Probably not a cat in the Bible, but anyway, okay. He finds, the, the family finds everybody in the house, all kinds of people full, the neighborhood full, people in the, 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 the home. All the people whom Cornelius helped, the soldiers probably in his regiment. They're all in this home. They're sitting there waiting. They've been essentially, for lack of a better term, they've been tailgating all day, waiting for the big moment. The anticipation is building because Peter, the apostle, is coming. And so Peter shows up, and here's what's funny. Peter walks into this house full of people. And the first thing he says is, you all know it's against our law for me to be here with you. Isn't that a nice way to start? And then he asks this question, which had to make people think, what in the world is happening? He asks, may, may I ask why you sent for me? I mean, here I am and here you are, but can someone please tell me why are we here? To which Cornelius then says, well, Peter, I had a vision. In the vision, you know, I heard a voice to say, go get Peter, and here you are. And so here's what, here's what Cornelius says to him. Now, he says this, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter says, what? And in this moment, Peter realizes that he's in a moment that has indeed been orchestrated by God. He has no idea why he's there. The people have no idea why they're there, except you certainly, Peter, have something to tell us from God, don't you? It's an amazing moment. And what Peter says next begins to plant a seed for a game-changing moment in the life of the early church. Because Peter remembers immediately his own vision, the sheet, and the struggle, the anxiety of the idea of even eating and killing the food that was in front of him. And he makes this statement, it's so profound. He says, I now realize, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. You are the people in my dream. You are the line that I wasn't supposed to cross, and here I am. And you are the line that the gospel of Jesus has crossed. That line that has been handed down from generation to generation, that has been added to our faith is a line that we have made up that wasn't from God. And I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism. And he begins, he begins explaining to them the history behind Jesus' involvement in the planet and then comes and walks through the gospel message to them. And then here's what happens next. In that moment, in this Gentile city where the the Roman emperor will often come to vacation and to stay for a little while, in in that place primarily a Gentile place, with a Gentile commander of the Italian regiment. The Holy Spirit falls on that room. In that room, those people begin to speak in tongues and worship and praise God. 
And it reminds Peter of something. It reminds him of just a couple chapters earlier, a couple years earlier, where the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, we call it, and began to validate the work of the apostles. And Peter immediately sees in this room, God has just validated what I believed is true. These people are now in. And that rule is no longer applicable. To which Peter then says, why should I ever get in the way of what God wants? Let's all get baptized. And he baptizes every single one of them there. And as an apostle then validates what God has validated and brings them and welcomes them in. And Luke writes in Acts chapter 10 that Peter stays with them for a few days, I'm sure, of sweet fellowship there and clarity on what we do next. But the problem is the story doesn't end there. Because when you cross a line as a Jew, or when you cross a line as someone who's a religious person, there's always going to be people who are still on the other side of that line, right? There's going to be people who handed down that rule to you, who aren't going to like the fact that you crossed that line. And so the Jews begin to hear what Peter did in, in Caesarea. And in the next chapter, chapter 11 of, the Gospel, of uh, Acts, Luke writes that there were Jews who came to Peter and were critical of him, began to speak negatively of him and did not like what he did. And Peter explained it to them. He explained what happened, and they finally got on board, but that's not the end of the story. And here's what happens with Peter. Because Peter is dealing with the critic, because he has this moment in Caesarea, just because he says these things are true, that that God doesn't show favoritism, there's still something deep inside him that has not yet embraced this reality. Because Peter then moves on from Caesarea to other towns and other cities, and he begins to eat with Gentiles, because this is a new normal that he can get involved in. But Peter also as he always does, takes a step forward and a step back, one, two, forward, and one back. Over time, Peter begins to feel the weight of the critic. He begins to feel the weight of Judaism. begins to feel the weight of what he's actually beginning to believe. Because it's one thing to believe something. It's another thing to verbalize it. It's even a third thing to see it validated by God, but it's a totally other thing to take your faith and push it into a sphere of people whom you most respect and who are the biggest influencers in your life. That is like the last frontier of your faith to push it in where the people you respect the most live. And so Peter begins, as he's eating with these Gentiles, when he knows that there are Jews who are coming to the town that he is in, he begins to separate from the Gentiles whom he is eating with. And so on one day he might eat with the Gentiles, but if he knows that the next day the Jews are coming, then that next day he won't, he won't eat with the Gentiles. And then the Jews leave, and then he'll eat with the Gentiles. And then play the game again. Here come the Jews. And Paul sees this as happening because he sees the struggle inside the heart of Peter. And in Galatians chapter 2, we believe this letter was written around the same time of Acts chapter 11. In Galatians 2, Paul writes it this way. He says this, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, which had to be fun to see, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Okay. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Interesting. And so Peter is in this moment of trying to believe and follow and act on something that he knows, and yet the struggle is real for him. And so Paul summarizes it this way to Peter. He says this, We know, this is a summary, we know that a man is justified, not justified, 
by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Like we know this, Peter. Man is justified not by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, right? Right? I mean, isn't this what we know? To which Peter's like, yeah, 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 sorry, I I knew that, I knew that, okay. And we have this, this reality of a struggle in the early church. It's almost like in the early church, a nor'easter is moving up the coast. We're on the one side, the cold air of the law and of Moses' tradition, the cold air is sweeping in from the north and northwest. And it's meeting the, the southern warm air of the gospel of grace. And in the early church, the two are kind of colliding right here in this one space, in this one little avenue. It's about to produce a storm. It's about to produce chaos. Because what is the church going to become? Is it going to become a church that is governed by the, the history, the law, the cold reality of Moses? commandments? Or is it going to be a church that is governed and guided by the warm grace of the gospel? And they both collide and there's confusion. Is this thing, whatever this thing is, this thing that's happening, is this a renewal of Judaism? Or is this a brand new thing? And for years, the church will exist with confusion on this issue. They will. They exist for confusion until finally, until finally, they need clarity. And the clarity that they seek first is sought by people who want to bring in the cold air of Moses' commandments. And here's what we read in Acts chapter 15. I'm going to skip this slide here and go right over to Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. There are people who are trying to clarify where are we going to live under the, the warm grace of the gospel or under the cold reality of the law. And the reality is it's always easier to control things and how we relate to God than not. And so there were people among them who were saying, listen, that's fine if we have Gentiles in, but unless you are circumcised, then you cannot be saved. To which Paul and Barnabas, who were early missionaries in the church, they looked at them like, um, we disagree. Seriously. Big time. They began to argue. To which the early church says, listen, y'all need to go to headquarters and get that figured out. And they sent them down to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, they called together a group of people to talk about this issue. And there in Jerusalem, they found the same teaching. And here's what they found. They found Pharisees down there. Then some of the believers, look at that, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. This sounds like what they just dealt with. The Pharisees, by the way, before we get too critical on Pharisees, You should know this about Pharisees, because I think it helps us understand where it comes in our own hearts. All the way back in the year 720 B.C., the the nation of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. The Assyrian regime and army rolled in. They took over the northern kingdom. They scattered Jews all over the place. About 100, 150 years later, the southern kingdom was taken, of Judea was taken. The the nation of Israel was in a civil war at the time. Northern was taken first. Later, the Babylonians came. Their war machine came through and ripped apart uh, Judea. And they began to uh, try to convert young Jews to the Babylonian way. Daniel was one of those people whose name was changed from Daniel uh, to, uh, the name skips me right now, but his name was changed because they were trying to convert these people. Over time, about a hundred and some years later, 70 years after that, but many years after the northern kingdom was destroyed, the Persians came to power. And when the Persians came to power, 
The Persians came to power and they said, you know what? The nation of Israel no longer exists as a thing. Like, we're not threatened by them. Why don't they go back to where they were? We don't even really care. And they began to return to Jerusalem. When they returned to Jerusalem, there was no temple, there was no central place of worship, and the nation of Israel couldn't even worship as they were. And the people who gathered around that space, people like Zerubbabel, people like Ezra, people like Nehemiah, who were architects of the faith of, of Judea at the time, they realized this. The reason we got in this trouble, the reason we got in this trouble is because we disobeyed God. The Mosaic Covenant was clear. Blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. The reason the Assyrian army came, the Babylonian army came, and now we're under the Persians, is because we blew it. We disobeyed. And so the only thing that makes sense is if we now obey, we'll be blessed. I want you to know this. The Pharisees trace their heritage all the way back to the spirit of that moment when Israel returned under the Persian Empire, and they were convinced and convicted as a people, we will never let ourselves be overtaken again. We want to honor God with everything that we have. And we want to obey everything about what God has given to us. And I can respect that. I can respect that heart. And over time, the Pharisees developed this deep-seated conviction that was passed down from generation to generation to generation, where the Ten Commandments became 613 because people wanted to protect the nation from ever being blown apart again. The Pharisees are still doing that here in Acts 15. And they say, listen, the Gentiles, we're willing to flex a little bit, they can come in, but they still must be circumcised. Because we have to honor and respect the covenant of God. There's discussion on the floor as this issue is put before them, the nor'easter has collided. And Peter, after a little while, Peter's a man of action. So Peter's sitting there, and after a little while, Peter gets up, and here's what he says. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Remember Cornelius. Remember, you know this story. And then he says this, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. And then he says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? And he concludes this way. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We believe that it is not the cold wind of the Mosaic law that blows in, but it is the warm saving grace of the gospel this is what the church should live under. This is a big, big moment. He puts this out there, and, and as this news comes down, and this devout Jew who's had this vision of eating unclean food says this, and he talks about the Cornelius event again, the church is in a moment of decision. And finally, James, who's actually the brother of Jesus, he concludes it all by saying this, It is my judgment, therefore, and this becomes a decision of the early church, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It's my judgment that we should not make it difficult. Forget the circumcision idea. Forget the Mosaic Covenant idea. And this is why it's such a big deal for the church. This is why I, I always get excited to talk about this, because this is the fabric of the church of which, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you attempt to follow him, this is the church that you are a part of. The, the church, universal is built off of this moment and this reality that we are no longer under this cold air of the law of Moses, but under this new 
reality of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is profound in its implications. The only problem is it's not as difficult to believe it, it's just actually harder to live in. Because if we're honest, we can feel the tension that Peter felt, can't we? Of taking what he believed and having a moment of clarity and epiphany with it in Cornelius' house and seeing the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentiles and baptize them and have an incredible moment with them. But then a couple days later, a couple seasons later, a couple weeks, months later, as the pressure is turned up a little bit, he begins to retreat from the very things that he says he believes. Do you ever feel that inconsistency? Do you ever feel that hypocrisy? Do you ever feel that on one day you'll say, listen, it is about the grace of God, but do you ever feel like on another day you're judging another human being because they're not following the same path of purity that you follow? Because this is the human condition. And here's the striking news about the gospel and the striking reality of the gospel is that it says that the heritage, the past, the things that you are used to, that have shaped your view of God and shaped you as a person, the songs that you have sung, the foods that you have avoided, the the drinks that you have avoided, the methods or ways that you have preferred, all of the paths that you have walked that have shaped you and given you very significant meaning in your life to God. That isn't what brings people to God. But it is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. And it is a striking reality to to hit us when we realize that the preferences that I've had in the past, even the things that have shaped me, the moments that have been very meaningful for me in my church history, in my faith journey, are indeed moments that have shaped me, which I do not denigrate or think less of. They have been powerful and impactful, and they still have meaning. Yes, as do yours, as do all of ours. But the future isn't that other people will walk my path and that other people will choose my morality or my ethics first. And that is the message that Peter so clearly puts out at Cornelius' house, that God does not show favoritism. So all those lists of things that I shouldn't watch or shouldn't listen to or should do or shouldn't do, all of those lists, some of those are explicit, some are implied, if we're not careful, can take on a life of their own and confuse the issue. And James, the brother of Jesus, says, let's just be clear. Let's not make it hard. In fact, Paul says it even more clearly as he finishes in Galatians chapter 2 talking to Peter when Peter was struggling with this issue. And he wrote this in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I I can't take the, the grace of God and set it aside and be comfortable judging my neighbor on the basis of the law. Because if they could follow the law completely and and righteousness could be gained through that law that sometimes we make up and put on people, then Christ died for nothing. So do not, do not set aside. The grace of God. And you know it and I know it. It is one thing to believe that. But it's another thing to follow. It's another thing, and this is why it's the last frontier, it's another thing to push that into the relationships that are most impactful for you, the people you respect the most and who have the most influence on you and on me. Because if you're anything like a normal person, there are certainly conversations you've had in your family in which there's a slight 
couldn't look down upon people like that. Guys like that. Ladies who do that. People who don't go there. And somewhere along the line, we're forced because of the grace of God not to set aside grace, but to keep it right in front of me and right in front of you. That the methods and ways and the path that I've followed that have been very impactful for me, great. But the path to God is through the grace of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine for a minute? Can you imagine for a minute? What it would be like if people saw Jesus that way. Can you imagine how beautiful Jesus would be to people if they didn't see him as a rule keeper, as a judge, as someone who you have to jump through the right hoops to get to him? Can you imagine how beautiful the church would be if people felt like this place, these people are ridiculously gracious. I mean, I, I don't even believe the things they believe. I don't, I don't even go to the things they go to. I, I don't actually watch the movies they watch. Like, I, There's things I do that I know they don't like I do, but I, they are ridiculously gracious to me. Can you imagine how beautiful our community would be when the gospel is lived out in that way? And I'm telling you, and you know this is true, it's one thing to believe it. But the question is, do I have the nerve to push that out when you'll be criticized for becoming a liberal, criticized for selling out, criticized for watering down, when in fact, what the church is, is a reflection of Jesus Christ. This is the hope and dream of the gospel, that there are people who hold out the grace of God and do not set it aside ever. And that is hard. But that is beautiful picture. The hope of the church, the hope of Jesus Christ, and the hope of the gospel. And this is Peter's story. And wouldn't it be amazing if one of the songs that we know so well actually became the anthem of the church? And you know it. Amazing grace. How sweet that sound. It saved a wretch like all of us. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to jump into the story of Peter and to see what he wrestled with, what he struggled with, what he fought for, and what has marked the church from that point until now. I pray that you would help us to fight that hard battle in our hearts and in our families and our relationships with our um, people who are closest to us and work in business and, and play and pleasure in school, that we can be people who continually press toward the difficult grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, this comes with all kinds of questions and struggles and challenges, no doubt, but may we be people who have those conversations around being heavy on the amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continue to drive us toward the goodness of the cross and how you have loved us even while we were still sinners without requiring us to do anything else first. 
Father, we thank you for the opportunity to see the story again. I pray that you would help continue to embed this into the culture of this church and into this community, that people can see you because of your incredible grace, no matter what. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.